everybody. <clears throat> We're currently looking um, at Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, um, the book of Galatians. And uh, last week we began, but not at the beginning, but rather in chapter 5. And that was because that it's in chapter 5 that we find out explicitly what it was that had so shocked and astonished Paul. Uh, we find out there particularly what it is that has occasioned this very angry letter. Although we actually can't be 100% sure uh, which churches exactly uh, Paul was writing to, almost certainly he's writing to churches that he himself founded uh, when he evangelized the Roman province of Galatia, um, preaching the gospel in the Jewish synagogues of those Galatian towns, Pisidian, uh, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. This was Paul's first missionary trip, um, with Barnabas and John Mark, and Luke gives us an account of that trip in Acts chapters 13 to 14. Uh, these churches are, therefore, um, churches that Paul knows extremely well, and he has uh, visited since, um, since founding them, uh, um, in the possibly 9 to 12 years between first founding these churches and now writing this letter. Um, the Christians in these churches are of both uh, Jewish and Gentile origin. Uh, that is to say, they're of both Jewish and non-Jewish background before putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And last week we saw that the main trouble, the thing that has prompted Paul's letter of outrage, is that there are some in these churches who are teaching that the men of Gentile origin, Gentile background, they must now be circumcised. And last week I explained that uh, in, in subtle contrast to the controversies which, which we see elsewhere in the New Testament, this particular controversy, this was a controversy over the issue of justification. Or to explain further in the Galatian context, um, what that means is that this was a controversy over what authentic Christian spirituality looks like in practical terms. The, the men whom uh, Paul in one place calls agitators, that they were teaching that authentic spirituality that is belonging to God and being right with him, uh, what that actually looks like is that it must include circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and obeying the Mosaic food laws. In other words, keeping kosher. Um, and for Paul, uh, this is a category one disaster. But the Galatians and us too today... We, we need to understand why, why is this such a disaster? Um, and that is precisely what, what we're doing here, working out why that was disaster. So then we began last week by looking uh, and studying chapter 5. This week we're going to jump right back to the beginning and we begin by finding out who it is who wrote this letter. Paul, I'm reading from 
chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from God nor by a man, <clears throat> but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. Um, Paul, doesn't, Paul doesn't always begin his letters by referring to himself as an apostle, but, but he does from time to time. And, and when he does, when he signals that he's an apostle right at the start of the letter, it usually um, means that he's writing now in an official capacity, um, occupying the office of apostle. And when Paul, right at the start of the letter, tells us that he's an apostle, he also normally gives us a little bit of an explanation as to precisely what that means. And in this case, um, uh, what, it, what is stressed, what it means, is that he is acting as an apostle by way of divine appointment. And thus also his message, divine origin. Sent not from men, nor by a man. Paul's message and his authority is not by way of human authority or tradition. Neither sent as a representative of this group or that group, not representing this tradition or that tradition, Paul is coming to them straight from God. And it is probable that Paul wants to make this point here and now because his opponents in Galatia probably are speaking rather loudly about human tradition and authority. In fact, they are probably speaking very loudly about the fact that they represent over a thousand years of tradition and authority in an unbroken line that reaches all the way back to Moses and even the patriarchs themselves. And by way of such weighty, weighty authority, by virtue of that, they are now, uh, they are now um, adding to Paul's message. But their addition is not to be tolerated. Um, something that often goes unnoticed in this letter is that it comes to the Galatian churches not only from Paul, but also from, quote, all the brothers and sisters with me, unquote. Paul isn't speaking as an isolated voice, although it would have been acceptable if he had been. No, let every matter be settled by the witness and testimony of two or three witnesses. You'll notice that, indeed, this letter swaps backwards and forwards between kind of a single voice, I, um, and a plurality of authors, we, swaps backwards and forwards between I and we. We don't know who these other Christians were, but it is certain that the Galatian churches knew exactly who they were. Apart from anything else, the people who had carried the letter from Paul's hand all the way to their hand and given it would have been able to provide, provide precisely that information and a whole lot more. So we know who the letter is from, and the Galatian churches know exactly who the letter is from. We now find out to whom the letter is addressed. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Um, Paul uh, uses every opportunity um, to evangelize. Um, that is to say, to preach and to remind his audience of the gospel by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Uh, this is a gospel about Jesus who is Christ. That is to say, God's anointed king, uh, who is God, together with God the Father. To be called to an apostolic office by Jesus the man is to be called to an apostolic office by God. This same man rose from the dead by the power of God. The gospel is a message about resurrection. And now here, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The gospel message is a, is a message about crucifixion. Uh, and it is a, in that, it's about Jesus paying the price for our sins on the cross in order to effect a rescue, a deliverance. This is Exodus language, exiting language, to rescue, to deliver, not, not now from the land of slavery, but what to deliver us, what to exit us from, to exit us from this present evil age. Um, here and now in the book of Galatians, that's the only time Paul uses this particular expression. But this present evil age must be an evil age because human beings, as a race as well as, as individuals, are enslaved by sin. Uh, though, though we are evil, we're in denial about that. Though we are evil, we're unable to repent. Though we are evil we are unable to save ourselves. And so the crucifixion of God's king is God's master plan, all done according to the wisdom and will of God our Father. So extraordinary and wonderful are these things that Paul, even in so slight and brief a mention of the gospel, he can't help himself except to burst into extemporaneous praise and worship to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do I hear an amen? amen. Praise God. But then what you'd expect in a letter of this type is, is, you know, and you can see it in Paul's other letters, what you'd now expect is a thanksgiving or a prayer or a blessing. That would normally open a letter from Paul. But instead of that, we get this. I am astonished or amazed or shocked. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we are have already said. So now I say again, if, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, 
let them be under God's curse. Um, in our day, somebody uh, might respond ironically or sarcastically with, tell us how you really feel. And in line with that irony, yeah, um, Paul has told us um, right at the beginning exactly how he feels. He's shocked. He's amazed. He's astonished. Um, uh, but he's also, in a few lines, told us um, uh, um, a lot uh, about all kinds of other things. And there's a lot of information packed into those few short verses. Um, as he's, he's, one of the things that he's shocked about, one of the things he's shocked about is he's shocked about how quickly this has happened. You have so quickly. And uh, when remarking upon the speed with which something happens, um, in the English language, as, as in Greek, as in, in human thinking, when you're remarking about the speed of something happening, you could be uh, talking um, temporality, you could be talking about timing, wow, you did that really fast, uh, or you could be talking about facility, you could be talking about how easy it was, gee, you did that really fast, meaning that's, you, that you did that with astonishing ease. Um, so it can be temp temporal or facility or often both. When we say that happened really quickly, we mean <laughs> it happened really fast and you did it really easily. And I think it's both here. Paul is shocked at the speed with which this new teaching has spread and therefore Paul is shocked at the ease with which this new teaching has spread. The Galatians were pushovers. I mean, although being spiritually mugged and bound and gagged, they're not even putting up a fight. They're not even protesting. They're just lying down and accepting this new message. And this message is, in effect, a desertion. They are deserting the one who called them. And while that could be taken to mean uh, Paul, the evangelist, the human spokesperson, they're, they're deserting him. Really, it, in context, it only really makes sense if we understand that he's talking about God, the Holy Spirit. They are deserting God. In changing the message about Jesus, they are abandoning Jesus. Um, and seeing as the gospel is a message of grace that is undeserved, unmerited, unearned, kindness and mercy, seeing as the true gospel is a message of grace, this different gospel must be about something other than grace. Presumably it's about doing something so that righteousness, right standing with God, is deserved, merited, earned. And Paul knows how profoundly attractive all such messages are. Almost irresistible. We just love those messages. Um, and yet, those messages turn out to be deeply, deeply toxic to the human soul. Thus, this message is, Paul's conclusion, no gospel at all. Um, now, he's playing on the word gospel. Uh, a gospel uh, translates a Greek word, euangelion, which uh, translates into English literally as good news. In other words, you Galatians, you're turning away from God's good news and are turning to bad news. The bad news about this false good news 
is that it must logically be something that is completely unable to rescue us from this present evil age. Thus, the bad news about this, the bad news about the bad news is that not only, can't, not only can it not help us, but in fact it's going to embed us ever more deeply in this present evil age, making us all the more sons and daughters of Satan as we minister in Jesus' name. And this bad news is coming courtesy of some people. Paul never names them. I don't know whether Paul knows who they are or not. Um, are they local Christians of, of that Jewish synagogue background, or are they emissaries from somewhere else? We don't know. Paul mentions them about six other times through the rest of this letter. It's a good guess, although it is a guess, it's a good guess that these people, whom Paul calls agitators in chapter 5, it's a good guess that they are visitors from church head office, located, of course, in Jerusalem. Perhaps also uh, the group now also includes some local Christians of Jewish origin for whom the logic of these visitors was just irresistible, given their Jewish background. But we don't know precisely who they are. What we do know from Paul's letter is what they are teaching, and we also know why. What they are teaching, that authentic Christian spirituality, must now also include circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and obedience to the food laws. Why? Well, because they are wanting disciples of their own. They are wanting to alienate the Galatian Christians from Paul in order to win them as their own converts. Paul uh, um, then uh, pronounces a curse twice. Um, the first cursing is an extreme hypothetical. Uh, indeed, something so improbable as to be impossible. But it's a rhetorical device just to make a point. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. So that's um, an improbable extreme hypothetical. He then applies the hypothetical directly to the people in the room, uh, the people sitting there listening, listening as this letter is read to them in their hearing as part of their weekly fellowship. So verse 9, As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Um, we must think very, very carefully then um, about what Paul is saying here. Um, we notice that both statements are conditional. If. These are warnings of the strongest type. But they are warnings rather than actual judgments now in effect. And the words, let them be under God's curse, are literally, he must be, anathema. Uh, as, we have, as we had foretold and now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel beside the one you have received, 
he must be anathema. This English word anathema comes from a Greek word which is anathema. And anathema as a word is a little bit difficult to pin down in terms of its meaning. The word here, anathema, is actually a different word. You'll, you'll notice if, when, if and when you get to chapter 3, um, the word curse there uh, appears five times. But that's a different word. That's, that's, that's kataras, a different word for curse. Um, and that does mean coming under the condemning judgment of God. So what does this English word, sorry, what does this Greek word anathema mean? Um, well, it's in English, it's come to mean something that must be utterly rejected as completely unthinkable. Um, and, and we might think about many situations where, where, where a thought is to be utterly rejected as completely unthinkable. This year, I think we should holiday in Paris. That is to be rejected as utterly unthinkable and whatever. That's how anathema functions in English. The Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jews were using at this time, the Septuagint, uses that word of things offered in sacrifice. And even in its New Testament usage, it seems to have sacrificial overtones. Paul uses it, uh, for example, like this in Romans chapter 9. For I could wish that I myself were anathema and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So then, um, when, when we read our English translations, it might sound to us as though what Paul is doing is he's pronouncing a curse. He's cursing people. He's calling down, he's using prayer to call down evil on folk, like a hex, if, if you like. Um, but rather than praying evil down on his enemies, it seems likely that he is declaring this to be a cut-off action required issue. This is a cut-off action required issue. But what exactly is to be cut off? I mean, that's a, that's a big question in the book of Galatians. What exactly is to be cut off? What action specifically is Paul looking for from the Galatian churches? Well, um, the New Testament has a very great deal to say about false prophets, false teachers, false apostles, false believers, even false messiahs. Um, it is very plain that such people are destined for hell. However, and this is the critically important point. They are not destined for hell because they are false teachers. Rather, they are false teachers because they are destined for hell. They're unconverted. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They are Satan's agents masquerading as messengers of light. They are springs without water, clouds without rain, prisoners, sorry, promises of freedom who bring in only slavery. The motive of such people, which Paul refers to in the book of Galatians and frequently elsewhere, 
the motive of such people will become obvious sooner or later. It is always, the motive of such people is always, always, always self-advancement in financial, social, or political terms. Their purpose in fellowship groups is always predatory. There's a distinction between false teachers then and teachers who make mistakes. Um, and, and Paul uh, talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3. Are, are we talking about mistaken Christians or false teachers? Well, actually, Paul never uses the phrase false teacher here in Galatians, although he is condemning of their motive. But what are we dealing with and how do we respond? Um, well, in this, in this letter, there's, uh, there's never any hint of any, or indeed anywhere else in the New Testament, when it comes, when it comes to, 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 to false teachers, there's never any hint of any organized disciplinary action against such people. Um, what Paul wishes, and he articulates this uh, plainly in chapter four, in chapter five, what Paul wishes is that the they themselves would cut themselves off. And, and we looked at that last week. That's what Paul wishes, that they themselves would cut themselves off. So what action? Paul, what are you telling us to do? How do you expect us to respond to this twofold declaration of anathema? Well, I think actually really what this is about is he expects us to understand that changes to the gospel are anathema. Um, changes to the gospel, that's what's to be cut off. Teaching is to be cut off. To be utterly rejected is utterly unthinkable. A category one disaster, exceedingly dangerous, never to be tolerated. What's to be cut off is the teaching. What Paul, as we sit in our pews and listen to this letter being read, what Paul wants us all in the fear of the Lord is to actually think very, very carefully about what we hear from others, particularly from teachers. And he wants us to think very, very clearly about what it is that we ourselves say to others. When we articulate explicitly or implicitly our assumptions about the gospel. Um, we're meant to, to have a healthy, godly, holy fear of getting the message wrong. Um, of either adding or subtracting. And in this, we are now both armed and warned. So, how can we meditate on this scripture? Um, Paul is shocked. Paul is shocked by the state of the Galatian church. However, seeing as he's actually seen all of this before, and in chapter 2 he, he tells us uh, all about where he's seen this before, I'm, I'm sure that although he is shocked, he's not surprised. Um, like Paul then, may I suggest that we too be shocked but not surprised by the inevitability of false teaching in Christian churches today.
And of course, this is currently an extremely important live issue for us as Anglicans because it's always been an extremely important and live issue for all Christians of all denominations and traditions through all times of history since the apostolic age. Um, for myself, actually, just sitting there and, and uh, listening to this scripture, um, I realize that when it comes to the state of the Anglican Church of Australia and the Diocese of Perth, I am neither shocked nor surprised. And so that's a moment of repentance. Lord, please forgive me that I'm not shocked. Um, uh, please forgive me that I've got used to um, an extraordinary state of affairs. The state of affairs of which I speak is nothing new. It goes back centuries. But the Anglican Church, right from the start, has always been a place of fierce contention over a wide variety of Gospels. And uh, in, in pain and difficulty, um, those who with me attended the Synod recently just understood a current manifestation of this ancient problem, the Anglican Church, is full of a wide variety of different gospel messages. And sometimes when people encounter this and they work out what Anglicanism is, they find it deeply and profoundly shocking. It's a complete scandal. And they have my utter sympathy. It's shocking. And Lord, please forgive me that I have stopped being, in the hardness of my heart, I have stopped being shocked by the appalling state of your church. Please forgive me. I'm no longer surprised, but I've also become hardened. Please help me to be shocked, as our brother Paul was. Um, but shocked and not, not surprised. It's nothing new. It's, it's, it's constant. It's a battle we're constantly involved in. But that, this, the, the, the battle of which I, I refer, that does beg uh, the most important question of this morning, uh, which is, what is the true gospel, and how do we recognize it? And you know, when I entered this diocese in 2008, I, I, I learned that actually when you went to places like Synod, when you engaged in other churches, the word gospel was actually a hand grenade that people threw at each other in order to cause damage. We, we were fighting tooth and nail over the word. Um, so, so, so what is the gospel? Well, simply put, it's the good news about Jesus. Um, and in the New Testament, there are many, many, many different pieces of information concerning Jesus that are identified as being the gospel. So the, the Bible never self-consciously provides us with a definition by way of content whereby we might know the precise boundaries of the gospel. There's a lot of stuff that we can refer to as now being the gospel. However, what we can be certain of is that the New Testament occupies now the apostolic office with respect to the preaching and teaching of the apostles, preserving for us their witness and testimony. 
So one way of saying this is from, 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 from the first word of Matthew to the last word of Revelation. That's the gospel. Um, safely we can say that whenever we hear a message that either adds to that apostolic witness or subtracts from it, we are hearing a message that contradicts and perverts the apostolic witness and therefore the gospel. Let me say that again. Whenever we hear a message that either adds to the apostolic witness or subtracts from it, we are hearing a message that is contradicting the apostles and therefore perverting the gospel. Um, as an example, and again, uh, this is not a controversial example. What I'm about to say has been going on for centuries now in the English-speaking uh, church world. Um, there are many Christians and many Christian churches that deny that Jesus died for our sins in plain contradiction to the plain witness of the apostles. They might say, oh yeah, d died to show us how much he loves us. Yeah, they agree with that bit. Um, but for many Christians, there are just so many problems with the idea of Jesus dying for our sins. They're uncomfortable with the idea of an angry God, a God, who, a God of wrath, a God who is angry over human sin and its destructive power. They're uncomfortable with an angry God. They're uncomfortable with the concept of sin, horrified with the message that human beings are actually evil and, and, and really willfully, willfully unwilling to even come to terms with that. They are appalled by the crucifixion, which in their eyes is cosmic child abuse and the essence of injustice. The innocent being condemned while the guilty are acquitted. That is the essence of injustice. How can this be from God? And indeed, in our diocese, in our time, it is not difficult to find Anglican churches in this diocese who have cut the gospel down to one thing, and to one thing only. The gospel is this. God is love. Is it true? Well, of course it's true. Um, but what happens, of course it's true. God is love. Does he love everyone? Of course he loves everyone. For God so loved the world. But when you strip the gospel of everything except God is love, when you subtract all of the apostolic scaffolding to that statement... Um, what you're doing is stripping away everything, redacting from all apostolic witness anything that might cause distress or discomfort uh, or alienation. Um, thus, such churches, they really like to read the nice bits in the Bible, but when they're confronted by something more difficult, they simply contradict it by saying, what I like to think, or... And I've actually heard somebody say this. What I think Jesus was trying to say, Lord have mercy. Or, of course, this is a very ancient text and we know better now. 
But if, you're, if you are being told that God is a doting, beneficent parent, smiling down benignly on you from heaven in an understanding way on everything you do, because, of course, he understands, then that's a message that actually you only need to ever hear once before deciding that next Sunday it'll be more fun to be at the beach. But such, but such beachgoers will be completely unprepared for the realities of coming face-to-face with a holy God. Additions or subtractions. Either way, it's a message that perverts and contradicts the only way by which we might be saved. It's shocking and it's speedy. Paul is shocked by the speed and or ease of acceptance of false gospel messages and we too should be shocked but not surprised to recognize that false gospel messages are highly marketable commodities. You can get really, really rich uh, by coming up with a new one and publishing it. They're just so attractive because they appeal to what Paul calls the flesh, pride and ego. Because they accommodate the sensibilities of our age, the idols of our culture. You don't have to give up anything. No one's going to ask you to change. And they find leverage in our hearts due to the unbelief that is already in our hearts. Lord have mercy. We, we, we hear the gospel. Uh, it is finished. It is done. I'm, I'm unconditionally accepted on the basis of his, his penal substitutionary atonement for me on the cross. That's, that's astonishing. But, but surely there must be something I can do <laughs> to make sure I'm justified. Um, I, I, I find it difficult to believe God on this. Surely there's something I can do to make sure I'm right with God. Circumcision, fellas, look, I just beg you to consider that, you know, sure, three days of pain, but what is that compared to the reassurance of knowing that you're right with God? Wouldn't that be a good deal? But I tell you, brothers, it won't end with circumcision because after that, those doubts, they will reemerge, and they will reemerge stronger because the unbelief has been strengthened because we've given into it, refusing to believe God's word. And so, having given in to unbelief once, we'll find it more difficult to resist a second time, and we will become more and more obsessive as a fellowship. Just speaking to the men now, as a fellowship of brothers, we will become more and more obsessive with respect to those acts of spirituality that we can cope with, the tithing of our mint, roe and cumin and rosemary, whilst all the more being, being less and less interested in actually looking like God with respect to his work of compassion, mercy and justice. What this will end in is us being neurotic and insular with a hatred and contempt for outsiders, the unwashed and the unclean. What we'll do, though, is we will comfort ourselves in our fear-driven loathing of the outside world. We will comfort ourselves that, that we are exclusively the truly saved ones, even though there's only two of us. And actually, I think the other guy's a bit of a heretic. So then, false gospels, 
highly attractive for all the wrong reasons. Things that not only fail to rescue us from this present evil age, but actually embed us in it as sons and daughters of Satan as we use the word of God against each other and in the avoidance of actually loving one another. We will boast because we believe we're saved by works and not by grace. And all of this is thoroughly bad news. By the way, if you want to know how this actually works, come on Wednesday night and watch The Devil Wears Prada. But all of this is thoroughly bad news for human beings and thoroughly bad news for the world. But for us now who are in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father, of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.